This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with designer Angus Highland about his career with Pentagram and about the power of graphic symbols. The Nike swoosh, for example, for which one designer was paid only $35. It's inevitable that um, as they become dominant worldwide, then the actual symbol itself increases in value. Here's Debbie Melman. We live in a world of symbols. From stop signs to letters and words to corporate logos, our minds swim in a symbolic sea of information. But what makes one symbol stand out and arrest our attention? Are there design principles that make one better than another? These are the questions that come to mind when paging through Angus Highland's new book, Symbol, co-written with Stephen Bateman. The book features over 1,300 symbols organized according to their visual characteristics. Angus Highland is a partner in Pentagram's London office, and he joins me at the School of Visual Arts in New York to talk about his book and about his distinguished career as a designer. Welcome to Design Matters, Angus. Hi there. Hi, it's so wonderful to have you join us. Thank you. So I understand that at an early age you realized that you were living next to a Shell gas station and you thought that it signified your closeness to the sea. And you stated that it was scary to you once you got a little bit older to realize how far your brand recognition preceded your literacy. And I want to know what you think about that whole experience now, looking back on it. Well, as a dyslexic, I'm still struggling with my literacy levels, but uh, so that might be one thing. Yeah, it's, it's true. Being from a seaside town, I always assumed that the, the shell was related exactly to my location rather than the fact that it was a big, large corporation. Um, <laughs> when, did you, when did you realize the difference? I think it must have come slowly <laughs> through time when I started to kind of have much more awareness of brand recognition, if not graphic design itself. Now, do you think that that had any contribution or impact no. on your decision to become a designer? None whatsoever. <laughs> that, that was much more related to the fact that I um, liked records and pop music, or more especially rock music and the way it was packaged. And um, that with my collection of Tintin books. And for some unknown reason, I still can't work out the fact that we had lots of um, tight specimen catalogues in our house. I don't know where they came from because my father had nothing to do with typography. He was a horticulturalist. So a, a secret designer somewhere located in the family I'm history? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe it was just fate. But anyway, the combination of those three probably and the fact that my um, academic skills were somewhat limited by the fact that I can barely spell more than a four-letter word led me to art college, which is the great sanctuary in the UK, at least it was then, for the uh, untutored talent. <laughs> now, you, you say that you were looking at, at record albums. So I know that Pink Floyd figures quite prominently in your history as an influence, as does Tintin. And I was really struck by the range of those two reference points in terms of 
creating the uh, motivation to become a designer. So can you talk a little bit about why you liked Pink Floyd or like Pink Floyd so much and what it was about Tintin that you found to be so intriguing? Well, I hadn't discovered Swiss typography at that stage, so I had to to grab hold of what I got. With the Pink Floyd, it was mostly the fact that they, that Hypnosis, which was the um, agency that created all the Floyd albums, produced these wonderful kind of elaborate packages that they were not just gatefold, but they had a kind of a whole allegory attached to them, and you would get postcards and stickers and like and, and then there was a whole story embedded yeah. in the album uh, art and they always 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 used brilliant people like george hardy you know who's another hero of mine so you said that you ended up in art school because of some academic challenges but that, that can't possibly why, be why you decided that you wanted to be a designer or an artist I'd say that if you are not particularly brilliant at passing examinations it does limit your um choice of subject area when you go into higher education. But did um, you think that... But I was always always destined for art school, I think, anyway, regardless of my uh, uh, lack of ability to pass an English literature exam. Destined in what way? Because I was good at art, I guess, like most people who go to art school. And um, I seem to remember that um, my elder brothers once said to me after I did a picture that uh, you should really... Um, should really concentrate on that. You seem to be better at that than other things. And, uh, and it kind of it never really dawned on me that people actually sort of made pictures and created designs for a living. And then after that point, I became much more uh, sympathetic to the idea. And so you went to school and graduated. And is it true that you went directly into starting your own firm? Yeah. Uh, well, I did, a, I did rather extended education, I have to say. I did my foundation locally in Brighton. And then I did a uh, four-year course in sort of information graphics at London, what was then the, called the London College of Printing, subsequently called the London College of Communications. Mm. And then I did a postgraduate master's at the Royal College of Art. So I kind of pushed it as far as so you could like go. you're like super smart. <laughs> well, I was super lazy, perhaps, or I didn't want oh, to get yeah. a job. <laughs> I know a lot of postgrad <laughs> master's degree students that are lazy. No, I don't think so. Well, so. So what made you decide at that point that you were just ready to start your own firm? Well, A, I'd run out of courses to do, and B, um, when you do a master's at the Royal College of Art, and it's certainly true in the late 80s when I did um, graduate from there, it was possible to start a freelance career based on the kind of uh, recognition you got from your show and the, sort of the, the publicity that came around your final exhibition. It was I had sufficient work for six months, so that kind of propelled me to just do my own thing, I guess. Otherwise, I probably would have... Um, apply for a job like everyone else. So you started working on your own. You had enough work for six months. And then did work just keep coming in? Were you soliciting work? Were you going out and sort of promoting yourself as as Angus Highland? I have my little shingle out now and it's time to call for, for opportunities. <laughs> um, well, I, I sort of quickly fell into a niche um, in the, my first project whilst I was still actually... Um, at the Royal College was um, a book cover for Penguin and that led to other book covers and then soon began to work for various publishers around town. So for the first few years of my um, professional activity I was fairly much in the publishing niche and it was only after maybe four or five years that I did 
record sleeves, actually. And I, th- I think I did a uh, an opera series, you know, mid-price range for um, you know Verdi's and Mozart's for for EMI classics, and that that seemed to me like nothing more than a book cover translated over to a record sleeve, I guess, because it's opera is kind of stories. I know you're still doing a lot of book covers now. I read recently that you did a whole series of book covers for Nabokov, and I read that you wanted to create a more playful presentation for Nabokov's writing. And I was wondering why you chose the word playful. Well, I was commissioned by Penguin Press, which is a division that run Penguin Classics in the UK, to do the entire backlist for for Nabokov because um, although Lolita is a best-selling title, actually in the UK market he sort of under underperforms. Apart from that one title, the uh, the other books don't sell so well. So the brief was actually to um, try and increase sales, the sales potential of this master. And uh, actually it was in the brief to um, inject a little bit more play into the kind of cover designs because Navicos always playing with kind of motifs and games and labyrinths and uh, such like. So I used the word playful because it was in the brief. So in 1998 you became a partner in Mm. Pentagram Mm -hmm. and... So that was pretty quick out of the gate in terms of the overall arc of your career. Ten Um, years after I graduated. Ten years. Um, So how did that happen? They just call you up one day and say, Mr. Highland, would you like to come in for an interview? The process of becoming a Pentagram partner varies in every instance. And um, there's a lot of uh, courting that Ah. was done. There hadn't been a new partner in London for a while. And I became a partner at the same time as Lorenzo Apicella, who's... um, an architect, so they brought two of us in. Did you have aspirations to join Pentagram? Was that something that you'd hoped for as you were in Absolutely school? no, not at all. No. Um, although, you know, it was, I, I would used to joke maybe a year or two beforehand that, uh, I, you know, that I was just waiting for the call. Ah, you <laughs> were joking. <laughs> yeah, hmm, joking aside. What would Freud say about that? <laughs> <laughs> what would Freud say? Well, indeed. Um, so, so maybe it was at the back of, you know, in my subconscious. Well, let's talk about your new book. Your new book is called Symbol. It is a 330-page compendium of logos, 1,300 logos to be exact. Mm. How many from Pentagram are in the book? <laughs> I had to ask. I wasn't counting. <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> um, there might be a few. So, so why... We do a lot, you know. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, why a book of symbols? Why? What made you decide to do that? Well, actually... This book is distinctly about symbols as opposed to logo types. And, you know, we bring the two together as logos or trademarks. But I, I really wanted to do a book that was entirely devoted to, to logos that were not created from letter forms, but from either abstract or representational symbols. The identities presented in the book range from the World Wildlife Fund Panda logo to the CBSI. There's a whole collection of logos that are bees, as in buzzing bees. Uh, And in many ways, they're presented apart from the corporate strategy or 
any kind of literal meaning right. or a message. Right. Um, and they're organized by form. So Correct. you've organized the book into two groups. You have abstract and representational symbols. And within those segmentations, you've further deconstructed them and you present each logo by shape. Mm. So, so what made you decide to choose to do the book in this way? Well, as a reference book, it's interesting to see how different designers have actually tackled the problem of of creating a distinctive bee, buzzy, <laughs> buzzy bee, the buzzy bee. I know, I don't, you know, with the radio, it's hard. To, like, it's not the letter B; it's actually a buzzy bee. bee. Actually, it throws up all sorts of very strange relationships on the page due to the fact that they share a common form. I wanted it to be an aesthetic experience so that when you see a double spread of um, variations of the circle or a triangle or a spiral or dot forms, they kind of gently morph across the page and um, give you kind of a sort of a nice, nice lyricism, if you like, that's completely divorced of their intent to symbolize a organization or, um, or corporation. And it has the added benefit of putting some very strange uh, kind of people into the same room. That was very odd interesting. Odd bedfellows. Yes, very odd bedfellows. Now, there, there is a really wonderful arc to the book. But when you begin to see as many buzzing bees as you do or as many dancing people as you do, did you ever think, wow, there's a lot of similarities to a lot of these logos? Did you ever feel that... There was a lack of originality in in any of the way that we create corporate identity. Ah, uh, well, that's a good one, really, because actually the, the nuances were part of the um, for me part of the interest. How how they um, there's going to be similarities across the page with how you deal with a single square, for example, or two squares, or you know um, a group of triangles. But at the same time, each can be distinctive. They're homogenized in a sense further by the fact that we rendered them all in black and white. So the the colorways, you know, in the, dressed in their corporate colors, didn't actually shift them apart, but we kind of we were very clear that we wanted to look at it in terms of graphic form. So it became a very graphic experience rather than um, one of color. So so similarities, yeah, there was a, there was an intent that you should see commonality, but within that difference I found myself looking at the dates almost as if that date then signified the first original introduction of that form as mm. an identity. Well, that's a tricky one because I think everything, it is tricky. Yeah. you know, you can go back to cave paintings, frankly, if, if you want to kind of take graphic form to its kind of original provenance, if you like, like the play button on your um, computer, the the play pause and stop signs first introduced in the um, 60s by the absolute provenance isn't certain but probably from Japanese manufacturers on reel-to-reel tape machines uh, to come up with something that a universal language which signified start now the the arrow which is play is actually just a truncated arrow head and that that has a provenance in in um, the 14th century in in um, cartography, where the arrow was first used as a device to um, signify direction. But it goes further back than that because um, 
if you look at cave paintings, arrows are used all the time, but whether or not they were designed for wayfinding is another matter. But you can see, you can trace, because graphic forms are so so, uh, simplistic and and basic, you can, you know, they have a rich... The etymology is wonderful. That's the word, yeah. You mentioned before that, that you felt that in some ways it was a reference book, but I read that you actually hoped that it would ultimately be more than that, that when seen isolated from the Marx context and its applications in the market or on materials, that the symbols have a really innate beauty. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you felt that innate beauty was. I don't know if it needs explaining. I mean, beauty is in the eye of the... um consumer of the product i guess so um, well, was there a criteria that the logos that you included were all beautiful because there were some that i felt no really no some are, some are frankly not beautiful right so that's why but I the, was the asking. beauty the beauty is sort of the fact that they sit with similar um well cousins as it were but not necessarily related by name so there's a common ancestry i guess and, yeah, even, they, and even, they've they've ended up in different parts of the world symbolizing entirely different organizations who who provide you with different products and services so there's a sort of i don't know it sounds a bit highfalutin but there might become some some dna that sort of strand that you can follow back through that that's what i loved about being able to see everything on yeah. the, on the same page and i loved the way in which the logos because they don't have any letter forms in them, become universal. The analogy I made was actually having a set as a kid of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So when you picked up the volume for B, <laughs> Buzzy B, <laughs> uh, not the not Buzzy B, but you'd, you'd find B there, but it would be next to something that had seemingly had nothing related to it except for the fact they shared the same first letter or second letter. I recently read an interview with you where you stated that symbols are the crucial part of an identity system. Some may say that they're dead, but I take the view that it's like the cherry on the cupcake. It's emblematic. It's signature. So I have a couple of questions about that statement. First, who's saying that identities are dead? I think that there are a lot of uh, exponents of contemporary branding who would argue that the brand experience is much more immersive and more sophisticated than simply badging something. And it's most extreme. Some people saying you could do away with a logo, you know, you put your finger over the logo, and, but you're still within the kind of the brand identity. That's but really that's, hard to do. I think that's actually not only hard to do, but slightly pointless because I think the, at the end of the day you have to sign your passport you need a signature you can't get away with not having it even if it's not as say crucial as symbols were sometimes thought where you just badged everything and that's all you did to identify it as your product sure of course the whole the whole business has got much more experiential and deeper and Etc. Etc. Multi-platform, la di da. But at the end of the day, you know, you you want something that synthesizes all that into one simple statement, and that's your mark. So there was a very specific then intention not to include any of the strategic rationale for why the logo. Well, that's another book, I guess. And you know, the intent of this book was much, much more straightforward in a way to actually strip them from all of that 
to, to label them, yes, so you knew where they came from. But beyond that, nothing else. There are case studies that punctuate all of these forms to give you a little bit further insight into specific uh, symbols. Well, I want to talk about some of them because they're really quite wonderful. And there are a number of case studies that you include in the book that I actually had absolutely no knowledge of in terms of background. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the peace sign. Yeah. Because that that was just a revelation to me. Mm. So the peace sign was actually created for the campaign for nuclear disarmament in 1958 by Gerald Holtam. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how the logo was constructed, what it actually symbolizes. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's never been registered. So in in a sense, it's a slight anomaly in, in the book. And it's become the generic form for peace. And actually, even today, I've spotted about three or four walking down the road in various weird ways, you know. But it's become part of our understanding of... Um, oh, it's, it's well, well, telegraphic. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's one of the happiest signs yeah. created. Well, and yet it's, it's, it's abstract and extreme. It's, it's basically a combination of two letters in semaphore, semaphore being the language used on ships with flags to, to spell out things. So it's an N and a D in semaphore, so nuclear disarmament, to create this unique symbol, which... For my money, I, I struggle to try and rationalize it in my own head, why this is so successful. And I came down to the fact that actually our other symbol for peace is the dove. And if you're a reasonably accomplished draftsman, you might be able to draw one. But if you're, you know, rushing out to kind of, you know, campaign about some something very quickly, then the peace sign is relatively easy to draw up. Yeah, and it's instantly recognizable. That, and I suspect there's a sort of quasi-religious quality to it. It's vaguely reminiscent of the cross or something Buddhist or something you don't quite know, but you you sort of bring all these values to it because it is slightly enigmatic, if you like. The fact is it's not representational. And I wonder if things that have more mystery somehow embedded in them, not knowing yeah. what something really means, totally makes it more interesting to someone. I totally agree. I think um, quite often some of the best logo types and symbols and trademarks have come about not through intent, but through association. So they have, in a way, idiosyncrasies, character, if you like, that if they'd have been strategically done, would have been knocked off them in the wind tunnel of, of contemporary... Market research. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. So you said that you didn't know why the peace sign ultimately became as popular as it has. Well, I know that after Aldermaston, which is where it first kind of appeared, there were these tiny little ceramic badges that were made and distributed after the campaign and were worn by people who were on it and subsequently kind of produced in small quantities and sent around. And it gained some traction through these tiny little little badges. Yeah. So you were declaring that you yeah. believed in peace. And then it was picked up by the kind of hippie movement and hey presto. Was Gerald Holtam ever famous for doing anything else? Not to my knowledge. No. Isn't that interesting? It's so, there are a few of those around. It's, it's amazing. So he's a one-hit wonder. Oh, but yeah. what a hit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's true of a, quite a lot of enduring trademarks. There are exceptions, you know, like the current Shell Mart, 
bring it right back as uh, Raymond Lowy. And that's that's been around for, for a long time. But uh, the Coca-Cola logotype was allegedly created by um, the bookkeeper. Yes. <laughs> now, you said that the book was only limited in terms of what you included by some of the permissions Correct, that you got yeah. from some yeah. of the, corp- of the, from yeah. the corporations. Yeah. Any noteworthy corporations that actually said, no, we don't want to be included in a book like this? Um, you'd have to ask my fellow author on that, because there are a few, but I can't, can't actually recall them. But essentially, it's, it's corporations who um, have logo types and symbols, and as part of their sort of usage, don't want to separate the two. Oh, I see. And we, we were very clear that we wanted this to be a book where the actual symbols were not accompanied by the, letter, the logo type. It sort of got in the way of the point of it, as it were. So when, whenever possible, we separated them out. Nike would be a good example of that. Yeah, so tell or the Adidas. Nike story. So Nike was created by Carolyn Davidson. I, I actually thought it was a bit of an urban myth before I found it actually documented in your yeah. book. She was paid $35 for the identity. She was a student. Yeah. Um, she ultimately got that paid was more. hourly rate, apparently. Um, $2 an hour. Yeah. $2 an hour. The distinctive thing that I always remember from it is actually really the value of it now, considering the value paid for it, as as an example of how these things grow in value because of the association, because you load brand equity onto these things. They are the vessels which you contain all the good things, or indeed the bad things. We think about a, a um, an organization or corporation. So it's inevitable that um, as they become dominant worldwide, then the actual symbol itself increases in value. So when you start off with something that was for a startup sportswear company, and you pay someone you know, or a friend of a friend who's also who hasn't even graduated, you know, a nominal fee, I think both parties completely naive to the fact that at one point in time, that symbol was going to be very valuable. Right, and it, at that time, it probably seemed quite... Well, it wasn't. That's the ...extraordinary point. to pay um, anything for something that for had no value. Right. <laughs> for swoosh. But, you know, it's interesting because the Nike logo is the Newport cigarette logo upside down. Right. And for a long time, it was the CNBC logo sideways. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm interested in... in Talking a little bit about that valuation, we bring all of these thoughts and ideas about the identity, about the corporation through the identity it becomes a, a shorthand for us to be able to telegraph. Can you talk a little bit about how that happens psychologically, how that happens in our psyche? If you take, for example, Coca-Cola and you asked an audience, I'll do it actually in my talk, if they were given the choice between what is still the secret formula for the uh, the fizzy brown drink, they were given the option of owning that or owning the um, the rights, the usage for the logotype. What would they choose? And it's a kind of the loaded question. And obviously, we all know that actually there's such value in that mark. Where although it's a secret formula, there are plenty of similar beverages. And I think the point is that we need these emblems to carry our feelings about the... They become, in a sense, more important 
than the actual product themselves because they are open to more interpretation in a way. They're more flexible than a sugary drink. This thing can be worn as a badge of honor. It can be, uh, it can package things. It can be um, promoted in a much more uh, versatile way. Well, it's a conduit to the actual product itself. And so, actually, so the communicator becomes, and we're getting very uh, off my turf and into semiotics here, but um, they become more important than the actual uh, formula. One of the other descriptions of the backstory of a logo that I really enjoyed in the book was about Deutsche Bank and how the logo was chosen because the work that Anton Stakowski did reflected the bank's positive attitude toward <laughs> progress. This is one of the simplest identities mm. ever created, mm. and how it could reflect the bank's positive attitude toward progress was a bit of a mystery to me. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great mark, actually, because in, in its simplicity. Yes. I mean, it's, it's a piece of arch modernism that came around in, like, the uh, early 70s. It's a very simple mark, but what better mark for a a German bank than a, this rectangle, closed rectangle, the safe, with a forward slash profit perfectly kind of protected within it. And um, I think probably hit a lot of resistance when it first came out. And the usual tabloid press about this man was paid a thousand marks which is untrue, for five lines. Oh. And then, you know, somewhat unwisely, Stokowski is pictured at the bottom, you know, an aging designer, and quoted as, a, oh, yeah, sometimes I get these ideas in there, you know, a second. <laughs> 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 which doesn't really kind of help to sort of uh, justify the price tag, even if it wasn't quite that. Or as Paula Cher, your partner, would say, maybe 78 years in a second <laughs> in the grand scheme of his life. Exactly, exactly. Now, you talk a little bit about the uh, brouhaha that ensued when the logo was first introduced. And coming from London, I have to ask you the about... Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what do you think? 2012, Wolf Olin's logo. I have, I'm a great admirer of a lot of Wolf Olin's um, brands. 2012... It concerns me on a number of levels, not least because it's sort of, um, unlike the great majority of um, identities for the Olympics, it's not destination-based. It's actually kind of time-based. It sort of takes the, the years. It's an important distinguishing feature. But that is rendered slightly abstract by the fact that it's actually not particularly easy to read. And then you have the Olympic rings sort of embedded within it at a very small scale and you know London in lowercase which does trouble me because uh, lowercase l is an i and all, all sorts of kind of a slightly irritating craft issues that I, I would have from a personal perspective but I'm also I was intrigued by the fact that it was it seemed to be clearly um created not for a broad audience but for a young audience and with the assumption that um that it would capture the sort of the zeitgeist of the time when the olympics happened well of course it was produced beforehand so it's second guessing the the cycle of fashion 
to my mind, assuming that the 80s revival, the postmodern revival, will be in full swing by uh, 2012, which is a very, really, uh, I would have said, quite a risky strategy myself. Well, that makes sense for Wolf Olins. They do tend yeah. to like to do those risky strategies. Yeah, yeah, especially in the, on, the cultural, on the cultural work. And, you know, sometimes they, they pull it off very well. So you mentioned the lowercase l often being mistaken for a lowercase i. Uppercase i. I'm sorry, uppercase i. Wow. I wrote Paula, your partner, Paula Cher, uh, today. Mm. And I asked her if there were any questions that she wanted to know about you while I had you sort of hilarious trapped here in my little sound booth Um, and so she she wrote to me and she said um, she responded and she said Angus is always very anal about his typography what? (laughs) could she rephrase that? Um, I want to know if he is the same with his closets or his home decor Um, his wife is an illustrator and they tend to be messy does that work? Or is Angus a secret slob? I'm not even a secret slob. I'm an outright slob, Paula. <laughs> you should know that. Look at the way I'm dressed here. You know, my 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 shirt is never tucked in. My tie. I'm wearing a tie. Just so for, that doesn't make change. you look slobbish. Well, Actually, a, the tie makes you look quite distinguished. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, uh, you know, uh, one of my partners described me as as um, immaculately dishevelled. Well, that sounds fair. You so know, you, I, hate, I hate being pinned down, but that was pretty accurate. So how does that work I, with you I, and Marion, your I, wife, Marion Duchars? Um, well, actually, we're not particularly tidy, either of us. And I, actually, if you look at my desk and pentagram, Paula should know this very well. It's actually, it's not, it's not perfect. It's, it's the one place where I can bring order is through my work. <laughs> Outside of that is is uh, chaos. So uh, yeah, no, I'm not anal, quote unquote, at home. <laughs> Well, Angus, thank you so much. Um, our well, listeners can find... <laughs> you wanna, you wanna, you what wanna an get... end! <laughs> <laughs> our listeners can find out more about Angus Highland's book at Pentagram's website, www.pentagram.com. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.